I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. People have a lot of different ways of interacting with the culture that they meet when they travel. Just because somebody goes to another place, and they may even appreciate that culture, but accepting that they live in a system that elevates white culture over, over, over non-white cultures, and that you have to actively do things to dismantle that. That is a big leap for a lot of people, even people who consider themselves to not be racist. That's Eric Deggins, NPR's TV critic, the first full-time one in the network's history, who's had a storied career as a journalist and writer. Eric authored Race Bader, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation, a book written in 2012 that is on point in 2020 that examines the role cable news networks and social media play in appealing to people's worst fears around racism, sexism, and prejudice. Eric joined NPR in 2013 after 20 years with several newspapers in Tampa Bay and Pittsburgh. In addition to his NPR duties, you can find him discussing media and culture as an analyst for MSNBC and NBC News. In 2019, Eric became the first African-American chairman of the board of the George Foster Peabody Awards for Excellence in Electronic Media and he serves as the chair of the Media Monitoring Committee for the National Association of Black Journalists, an association that we also belong to. A little-known fact, Eric had a career as a touring professional drummer in the 1980s and continues to perform with local groups when not on the air. We hope his passion for music will resonate with you as much as it did with us. Here's our conversation with Eric Deggins. Eric Deggins, NPR TV critic extraordinaire. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure. A couple of years ago, I did a TEDx talk in Wilmington, and the focus of my talk was on a term that we use called ground truthing, really finding your truth on the ground, and um, particularly in the travel space, which is where we live. What I tried to do is encourage people to, to to see for themselves, you know, to form their own opinions, because as you know, and as you've said, um, a lot of media will use images and language and et cetera for the sole purpose of creating division, something you call race baiting. Talk a little bit about race baiting and, and also why... Do they do this solely for the purpose of um, providing revenue? Because conflict sells. You know, we're in the media. Conflict sells. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, that's that's what I tell most people. I speak at a lot of colleges and, you know, people who are studying media, studying to be journalists or marketing executives or what have you. And what I always tell people is that 95% probably of what you see that happens in media is about um, someone making money or someone losing money. It's a business. And so there are channels out there, there are platforms out there whose revenue strategy is built around cultivating an audience and keeping that audience from going to another platform, like trusting whatever content they provide to the exclusion 
of competing platforms. And there are some outlets that have chosen to use prejudice and stereotypes and racism as the means by which they draw people to them and they keep them from going to other places. And Fox News is the greatest example of that because they've been the most successful with it and they're the most high profile. So particularly in their primetime hours when they have a bunch of opinion programming, when they have Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingraham, um, sort of espousing opinions, they're not considered journalists. They are constantly sending the message to their target audience, in part, that their fears about race and how it works in America are justified. And this audience is uh, older. The median age for some of these programs is 65 or 66 years old in prime time. So half the audience is older than 65 years old. Mm. So this is, a, this is an old audience. This is a very white audience. This is a politically conservative audience, and it's an audience that's more male than female. And so they are going, they're speaking to that audience, and they're saying, you fear that all these attempts at racial reconciliation are unfair to you. You don't see strategic racism or systemic racism in policing and education and housing and all these things. You don't see that. You know, you want to see in America where, quote unquote, traditional values that were upheld years ago come back into sway. And so they present this world where all of that is accepted and valid and proven by whatever statistics they can cite. And part of that is to use prejudice about people of color and stereotypes about people of color and an unwillingness to believe in systemic racism to spread that message and then tell them, well, you can't watch uh, uh, CBS or CNN or MSNBC because they're all going to have stories telling you that these things that we're telling you are true are, are not true because they actually live in the real world and they report on what's actually happening, right? So they tell these people, you know, stick with us. We'll tell you the quote unquote truth. You can't trust these other media outlets. And if you trust us, you know, you, you'll get the straight scoop and we together can build this movement that will revolutionize politics or revolutionize media. And that's been Fox News' message almost since it was founded. And now, it, you know, the culmination of it is, is a president that watches the channel incessantly, that takes his policy cues from what he sees these pundits say, that hires people who used to work at the channel because he's seen them on the channel and they impress him in some way. And so then he hires them to work in the administration. And he even calls their biggest star, Sean Hannity, after Hannity's show and talks to him about how Hannity's show went and about what kind of policies um, that the administration might enact based on what Sean Hannity believes. The president has an entire national security apparatus at his beck and call, all of the military, an entire intelligence apparatus, health experts that are at the top of their field, but he is getting his advice on handling the pandemic and foreign affairs and the border from Sean Hannity. So that gives you a sense of how much power Fox has and how much revenue and success there is in telling a group that it is right to feel aggrieved, that it is right to feel under siege, and that they are the only platform that can be trusted to tell them the truth. Eric, as we think about what's been taking place in the media, particularly as media organizations, whether they're print organizations have been in survival mode for well over a decade because of just the transformation. We've also seen, too, a change in editorial 
policy, so to speak, where traditional journalists used to speak about things such as balance and objectivity. And now we see analysis that historically would have been on in the opinion section now kind of make its way into the basic news backtelling that we see on page one. So given that media tends to feed on conflict, isn't the media really to blame for a lot of this credibility loss, this lack of trust, this kind of blurring of fact and opinion where people don't even know the distance or don't even have in their mindset to question the truth, so to speak. I think you're talking about a very complex dynamic where a bunch of things have come together at once to create what we see. I don't completely agree with the scenario you set forth. I think one of the things, for example, that traditional news outlets have had to deal with is that the audience knows that reporters and editors have opinions. And when you create news stories where you delicately try to avoid acknowledging that the reporter has an, uh, might have an opinion, especially a reporter who's covered a beat for a long time, then the audience thinks that that's hypocritical. First of all, one of the problems, I think, is that people don't understand how media works. Even people who consume a lot of media don't understand how it works. An editorial board at a newspaper is different than the editors who guide news coverage at a newspaper, and it's always been that way. But people have a tendency to look at what the editorial board says in terms of the op-eds that it crafts and the opinion columns that it puts together, and then transfer that to the news coverage and say, well, that must also affect their news coverage. That's not necessarily true. And I think the Wall Street Journal is a good example of a paper where their fact-based reporting is really of a high quality and very fair, but their op-ed page is so intensely conservative that it is, um, uh, it doesn't deal in fact often, and it has become a haven for crackpot theories and the kind of commentary that isn't particularly fair. I, I, I don't have a lot of respect for their op-ed page, but I think their factual reporting is still quite good. And that's because those two things are separate. Uh, you know, I'm somebody who's been covering television since 1997. Um, now I'm a critic, so right away in my job title, it tells you that part of my job is to deliver my opinion. But if I were to do a story, for example, about diversity at the TV networks, and I didn't put in the observations that come from being someone who's covered the industry for 20 years, the readership would look at that story and say, well, that's crazy. You know, that person should allow their expertise to inform what they're doing. Now, you make sure that you signal to the reader what that is, that you're expressing an opinion or that you're expressing an analysis that comes from, uh, you know, experience. There's ways to do that. And there's ways to do that ethically so that the reader knows exactly what they're reading and exactly how you came up with it. I think the problem that we have is that when people talk about the media, they're not really talking about traditional newspapers and and a wide range of media. They're talking about television and in particular, they're talking about cable television. And cable television has blurred those roles a lot. You know, I even write about it in my book. I talk about the first chapter is about how the conflict between MSNBC and Fox News has eroded people's confidence in journalism in general, because not only do you see at Fox News 
that their reporting is affected by the political stance that Fox News Channel has decided to take about issues. But you see that MSNBC, for example, has Al Sharpton working as an anchor. Now, he's done a lot of uh, incredible things, but he's an advocate for uh, people who are challenging police, city officials, state officials, federal officials, while he's also hosting a news program on MSNBC. And I've always said that that's a terrible idea because it feeds into this thing that you're talking about where there's all this blurring of roles and he sits on a news set of a cable news channel. He's got the image over his shoulder like a, a news anchor and it, it all looks like a news broadcast, but you know what his job, you know what he does is kind of different. Al Sharpton has turned out to to be uh, a very successful MSNBC anchor, but I do think that the one downside of that is that blurring that you talk about. I do think that it's worse on Fox News because they are less bound by traditional journalism standards. Because MSNBC is kind of yoked to NBC News, they are often required to follow NBC News standards in a way that uh, that Fox News people are not. In fact, um, you know Keith Olbermann, when he worked at MSNBC, was suspended for a time for d- donating to Democratic candidates, and so was uh, Joe Scarborough. MSNBC does have standards that they impose on their talent that Fox News doesn't. Uh, but ultimately, I think the lesson is that people have to, you, you can't find one news organization that you could completely trust and let your guard down with and just believe everything they tell you. It's to the point now where you have to look at individual journalists, individual content creators, and say, do I believe that person? Is that person ethical? Can I trust what they tell me? Because, you know, Jake Tapper and Anderson Cooper are one level. Don Lemon uh, is another level. Sean Hannity and Laura Ingraham are yet another level. So part of this is that the audience has to do a little bit more work than they used to do because they ha- because there's so much choice out there. There's so many different platforms out there. You have to do the research. I always tell people, <laughs> think like a lawyer. We're both lawyers. So I'm like, do your due diligence. You know, we analyze everything. This is the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Travel deeper by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift we have just for subscribers. I want to pull this back a little bit to our space, the travel space, and share a story that I really grappled with recently. AP Stylebook changed their guidelines recently where they're capitalizing black and not capitalizing white when, you know, referring to groups of people. And that caused an uproar with some of our fellow travel journalists, not all, but, you know, there are some who had a very loud, uh, vocalized objection to these rules. The thing that really occurred to me, Eric, and it it really disheartened me is when I think of people in the travel space, people who are well-traveled, 
these are people who are woke. These are people who, you know, have empathy, who have broader minds. And what I saw were a group of very narrow-minded, well-traveled people. And in our space, World Footprints, we have been working really hard to share our common humanity and to encourage people, again, to find their own truth, you know, about other cultures and what have you, to, to just go and immerse uh, themselves in other destinations. And I asked my husband, I said, golly, I feel like I've been lying or I've been living a lie because I'm thinking travel, people who are well-traveled are a lot more educated and, uh, and, and open. But um, that's not the case in, in our industry. Have you found that as well? Because in your industry, you guys, you know, in NPR and in in other national news organizations, there's a lot of well-traveled people as well who have covered international stories like the Black Lives Matter movement, which is a global movement really now as well. I mean, am I wrong? Am I wrong? I don't know much about the group of travel writers and editors that you're talking about, but what what I do know is that people have a lot of different ways of interacting with the culture that they meet when they travel just because somebody goes to a, another place and they may even appreciate that culture, but accepting that they live in a system that elevates white culture over, over, over non-white cultures and that you have to actively do things to dismantle that. That is a big leap for a lot of people, even people who consider themselves to not be racist. When I was married, my wife and I, we went on vacation to Jamaica, and we stayed at one of those Sandals resorts. You know, you get there and they tell you, don't ever leave without telling us. You have to have an escort when you leave the resort, and we will put together excursions for you to go to local places, but don't ever go by yourself. And so we went to uh, the waterfalls they have there. You walk up the waterfalls, and as soon as you come out, there's all these there's stalls with knickknacks and, you know, souvenirs and stuff. And because we went during the off season, there weren't that many tourists there. And all of the people who ran the stalls kind of descended on us and were just trying to get us to buy stuff. And it was just like, Oh my God. And you get a real sense that outside of this wondrous area that they've created in sandals is just this desperate poverty that, in a weird way, you're helping maintain that system by going over there and giving this resort all this money. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, when we got back from that, I thought to myself, how, how can people go to these places? How, how can people go to a resort like that, knowing that you're propping up a system where there's, you know, a small level of people who have money and privilege, and they're standing on the shoulders of all of these desperately poor people who the best they can hope for is to sell, you know, me a fake drum when I get done walking out the waterfalls. I couldn't enjoy myself during that vacation because I was so troubled by that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yet, there's tons of well-traveled people who go to places like that and feel like, hey, this is a wonderful time. I've enjoyed myself tremendously. Because they, they, they don't allow themselves to see how they're participating in the system that's exploiting people, particularly people of color. What I think sometimes is that even something as simple as telling people you have to capitalize the word black 
makes people aware of the privilege that they are operating in in a way they don't want to be made aware of. And you get a pushback that is not in proportion to what you even think the incident is. You're like, why are people so, why does saying Black Lives Matter upset some people so much? We're not saying Black Lives are better or Black Lives are superior. You're just saying Black Lives Matter. Right. Right? Because acknowledging that that has to be said also means acknowledging that there is a system that is encouraging people to think otherwise. And people don't want to believe that they live in a, in a system where that's the case. When I was doing my book, and I don't think the, I don't think the, the, the figures have budged, you know, 50% of the people polled by the New York Times for a story that they were doing thought that white people were as likely to be persecuted for their race as black people in America. 50%. Uh, of New York, New York Times readers? No, no. It was a, it was a national poll. They probably oh. talked to like 1,000 or 2,000 people. Yeah. And your uh, book and came out in 2012. So 2012. NPR, NPR did, a, did a, a survey uh, more recently, I think 2017, 2018, something like that. Same, same figure. Half of the people mm. they talked to thought that. Mm. That's the level of sort of cluelessness about how this actually works. I feel like people who don't want to believe in systemic racism, what they have is their feeling. They want everything to be equal. They want to feel like American culture is equal. What I have is facts. Just look at health outcomes, look at income, look at education rates, look at family wealth, look at incarceration rates. I mean, every metric that you can imagine, black people do worse than white people. And if we agree sort of logically that there is nothing physically about us that differentiates us uh, intellectually from white people, then there has to be another reason why so many black people in America have such worse outcomes in every area of life. And that's because structurally, systemically, the way America conducts its criminal justice system, education, housing, employment, there are things, there are practices, there are attitudes, there, there are procedures embedded in all of those systems that make things a little bit tougher for people of color. And, and, and what we really need to do is face up to that. And so part of that is, is trying to get white people to face up to the denial that they have, that this is happening. My thing is always, well, well show me the facts. Show me the facts that indicate that everything's equal, that everybody has an equal chance. Hmm. And I haven't seen them yet. Here's more of our conversation with NPR TV critic Eric Deggins as we discuss the business of media, the state of race relations in America, and his reflections on music and culture. Eric, I'd like to follow up on Black Lives Matter, particularly at this time, because it is informing uh, decisions that are being made in many media companies to kind of beef up their beats around African-American themes and stories that relate to people of color across various sections of the newspaper, so to speak, whether it's in sports or finance or just general coverage news. And I know USA Today had an announcement a few weeks ago 
about how they are going to change their beats and the Gannett company in general because of the times in which we find ourselves. So there are some pushes, I guess, to bring these stories forth. But given where we know things are in terms of putting out more information, do you see that having an impact either in the near term or is it more just acknowledging, yes, we have a problem, but is it the solution that will bring about the change that I think people want to see? First of all, I would say that these beats and these efforts to rearrange coverage are things that critics, media critics like myself, have been calling for for 20 years. I have been writing columns and making speeches and saying that this kind of beat coverage has been necessary for a very long time. The way I said it was that, you know, you can watch a local newscast or you can watch the CBS Evening News, NBC Nightly News, and you will see a quick report on the stock market. And why do you see a quick report on the stock market every day? It's a way of of, of signaling to you, here's the economic health of the nation in a snapshot, right? There is no competing or, or, or comparable uh, moment where we talk about where racial issues stand or where prejudice stands or where systemic racism stands. That kind of coverage is still sort of special projects. You know, every so often we'll have a full section in the newspaper that they took six months to put together or we'll have a special look at something when someone gets killed or, you know, someone is severely injured by the police, then we'll get an in-depth look at, at policing in that community and race. And what I've always said is that this stuff needs to be daily. It needs to be, it needs to be considered daily, looked at daily, developed as a beat the same way you would cover you would cover cops the same way you would cover the courts, the same way that you would cover business. You need to have a race beat, a racism beat, a culture beat, where you talk about this stuff in your news product all day, every day. And finally, we're getting to that point. But this is something that experts have been calling for for a long time. It took the Black Lives Matter movement and this civil rights reckoning that we're in the middle of that is, I think, beyond the Black Lives Matter movement to push these news uh, outlets into realizing that they absolutely had to change how they do what they were doing or the audience would rebel. And finally, the audience, you know, had to get in their face and say, look, this has to change. And frankly, the staffs have done it. At the Philadelphia Inquirer, when they ran a story that had the headline, All Buildings Matter, to talk about the impact of rioting on buildings, the staff revolted and the editor-in-chief had to resign. When the New York Times ran an op-ed from, from Senator Tom Cotton suggesting that the military should be used to put down uh, peaceful protests, the staff said that that would put, in particular, Black journalists in extreme danger trying to cover these protests because they'd be singled out by cops. And um, the, the op-ed editor had to admit that there were inaccuracies in the op-ed, and he was forced to resign. And so now these people who are running these newsrooms understand they can't make decisions in a vacuum anymore. The audience and their staff will hold them accountable. And that's why these beats are being created, mm -hmm. because they realize that something is happening out there that they have to capture. And they're changing to their, their staffing and their coverage uh, resources to meet it. But 
you know, there are those of us who've been observing this for 20 years who've been telling them they've been needing to do it for a long time. And that's what's so disappointing. Uh, too often, these systems are like, um, they're like pets. You have to like hit them in the face with a roll of newspaper to get them to change when observant critics have been suggesting for a long time that this is something that they should do. Mm-hmm. The rolled up newspaper would not work on our cat. We try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cat, well, cats are different. Cats yeah. are different. Yeah, yeah. But sp- um, speaking of beads, first of all, we need to have you back because there's a larger conversation uh, that we need more time with when we're not competing for your time <laughs> um, sure. or ours. But I, I know that uh, you were a touring professional drummer, so it's a different kind of beat. And I want to talk yeah. about that. And also whether or not you knew a family friend of mine from Detroit, Ricky Lawson, in your travel. Oh, well, uh, I never met him, but I was, he was an inspiration. Yeah. Um, I, I still play. Yeah. I, I have uh, always been a fan of his. I have a video of him playing behind um, Phil Collins. He toured with mm. Phil Collins mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and just did an amazing job. He played with um, Steely Dan. I have videos of that. I learned a lot from his playing there. Uh, yeah. He's played with Stevie Wonder. Uh, I mean, and, and Michael, the Yellow Jackets. Giroux, the, the, yeah. the Yellow Jackets was was also a big one. He played with the jazz band, the Yellow Jackets, their yeah. first uh, records. And and I really studied the breakthrough record that they had called Shades that he's on. So I, I yeah, I'm a huge fan of, yeah. of what your cousin. No, he, he, he was my adopted uncle. He's a family friend. He went to um, high school with my aunt and uncle. And so I kind of adopted him. And when I met him, he was playing with Al Jarreau. And, we, you know, we went backstage and Al Jarreau came up. And I, and I got excited. I'm like, oh, Uncle Al. <laughs> Felt like a fool. <laughs> but, um, but anyways. I, yeah, Ricky, Ricky. And, and yeah, Ricky. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, well, I do want to ask you about your your um, your experience touring as a musician when we have you back next. But before we go, I do want to ask you one one question: If you could sit next to anybody on a long haul flight, past or present, (laughs) who would that be and why? Oh, that's easy. That would be Prince. Yeah. Oh yeah. I did have a chance to meet him before he passed. It was, as you would expect, it was a, a really eccentric situation. The National Association of Black Journalists held its convention in Minneapolis a few years back. And there was all this buzz that he, that the Prince might do something with the convention. But, you know, nothing was ever for sure. And I had the group's media monitoring committee. So I kind of know the board and stuff like that. And I was always asking them and I was, they wouldn't, didn't want to say anything because they didn't want to blow it because uh, he's notoriously temperamental, of course. It turns out that he invited everybody to Paisley Park, which is his home and studio in Chanhassett, the final night of the convention. And everyone was told you cannot bring in uh, smartphones. You can't bring in phones of any kind. So leave those at home. If you have them, you won't be admitted. And they had a, a metal detector at the door. I, I didn't bring a paper or pen or anything like that because uh, I figured they wouldn't let me bring that in either. So so we just came. The president of the group had me stand over by the side um, where they were admitting people with a group of other people, and he wouldn't tell us why. And then a huge bodyguard came out of nowhere and took us uh, through a door 
right next to where they were taking tickets. And I went down this long hallway and I'm looking and there's these little sconces in the hallway and there's a Grammy, there's an American Music Award. <laughs> there's, there's all these different awards in the sconces. And I was like, holy crap. Then it opens out into this big room. There's a piano with the grill of a, of a, of a car on the front of it. There's, there's, there's all these gold and platinum records on the walls. And there's one diamond record for uh, Purple Rain, which I think was like 10 million sold. And, you know, we realized we're like in Prince's living space. And they take us up uh, another flight of stairs and we walk through this practice room and we go into the control room of the studio at Paisley Park and Prince is sitting behind the control board. And he says hi and leads us to a conference room. And there were about, I think, about eight of us. It was me and Michael Wilbon uh, from ESPN and um, Kelly Carter from, she's at, uh, she was at BuzzFeed, I think, then. I think she's at Undefeated now. Just, just you know, eight uh, black journalists who were kind of connected to entertainment coverage, kind of connected, connected to pop culture coverage. He wanted to pick our brains about what we thought about the music industry and what we thought about him at the time he was going to provide all of his music digitally to title um the streaming service that jay-z has started and we had 45 minute conversation and i was so starstruck that i wasn't i wasn't able to ask a coherent question and you know prince prince is interesting like this with journalists he doesn't let you take notes and he doesn't let you record the interviews you know, you might say to him, well, that, that increases the likelihood that you'll have inaccuracies, but it also has this weird power dynamic where you're constantly trying to remember what he says so that you can go down and write it down later. So you're not as focused on the questions that you're asking because it's such a, you know, it's such a weird, you know, you're already freaked out by being with him. Yeah. And then you're trying to remember what he's saying and you're also trying to ask intelligent questions. You're also trying to think, well, what did he say and did it make sense? It was a crazy thing. So, so I just decided I was going to remember three or four things that he said. I, I, I committed to memory. When it was over um, and, he, and we said our goodbyes, uh, I ran out of Paisley Park. I got an Uber and I went straight to my hotel room and typed it all out. And then we had a story on NPR.org the next day. But I would love to have had a situation where I wasn't feeling pressured to generate a story and um, I could relax a little bit and I could hang out with him. I did have an experience like that with Kenan Thompson from Saturday Night Live. We were in first class on a plane together flying from Tampa to Philadelphia where we both had speaking engagements. And it was just, it was complete coincidence. I sat down late, I looked next to me, and it's Kenan Thompson from Saturday Night Live. And I told him who I was, you know, he's the TV critic for NPR. And we just started talking about television and the industry and what we liked and what we didn't and things like that. Mm. And before I knew it, you know, the fight was over. I think it was two and a half hours. And, um, you know, we connected enough that I wound up going back to the show and doing a story about him. But yeah, yeah, Prince, without a doubt. Oh, wow. Eric, thank you. Thank you so much. We definitely have to have you back on because there's so many more questions about NABJ, which we're members of as well. And, uh, sure. Man, golly, yeah. you're just a font of uh, very... I know, I'm a, I'm a font of useless information. <laughs> no, you, useful. You heard me say useful. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you so much. 
I really enjoyed this conversation with Eric. I certainly loved a couple of stories and I know what your favorite story is. But what I really appreciated is that he reiterated something we've been talking about for quite some time, and that is the systemic racism that we see in the travel industry. And, you know, it it takes a lot of work to really bring that out. And I think World Footprints and a few others have have been doing that, some more recent than others, but we've been doing that from the time we started. Given this time where we're not traveling, and I know that's almost become like a cliche during this time, but what we've been trying to do with World Footprints is really to go into some of these areas that allow us to take a closer examination of culture and society. And having Eric on did a few things for us. It allowed us really to take a critical look at the media and in some ways put a mirror on ourselves in terms of what we should be doing, how we should be looking at Mm -hmm. our charge as journalists, as travel journalists, as media people trying to make a difference out here and putting a spotlight on some of these critical issues in our space, albeit the travel space, but it's still important to focus there and to try to build some of those bridges and help deal with some of the issues that are there. Because if it's happening in one area, it's happening in other areas. And so we can only work in the places where we've got some influence and that happens to be in this travel space. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the important things that we've been doing that, you know, we kind of touched on with Eric is making sure that the full story, the entire narrative is told because, you know, we have seen a lot of whitewashing of um, history. And I think it's important, you know, to share both the, the dark points in our in American history and world history, frankly, um, in order to really understand how that has uh, been embedded in our culture, how it has informed uh, our society today. Um, There's so many more stories and I really want to have Eric on and as we said before we closed out with him. One of my favorite stories, and I know it's one that really touched you, was a story about Prince. And the fact that Eric knew um, a an adopted uncle of mine, um, who was not no longer with us, but a, a, a legendary drummer, um, you know, it just shows how small this, this world is. And I didn't know about his musical talents, and so that that's a nice thing to know. It just adds more appreciation and depth for him as as a person beyond just the realm of journalism. In closing, I want to leave you with a quote from one of my all-time favorite people, the late Dr. Maya Angelou. We had her on World Footprints, and I'd like to share these words from her book, Wouldn't Take Nothing for My Journey Now. Perhaps travel cannot prevent bigotry, but by demonstrating that all peoples cry, laugh, eat, worry, and die, it can introduce the idea that if we try and understand each other, we may even become friends. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we thank you for the privilege of your time and for allowing us the opportunity to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. 
the multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.